All right, I want to welcome everyone to Grace Community Church this morning. And if you have your Bibles today, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We're going to take a moment and we're going to ask the Lord to bless the preaching of His Word today. So I'm going to pray for us and I would ask you to pray in agreement with me. We're going to pray the will of God in the name of Jesus. And we want to trust the Lord to answer us. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come together today in Jesus' name. Lord, and we want to give you thanks, God, for the grace that you've already given us today, Lord. God, you gave us the cup of blessing that we bless and you allowed us to partake of it, Lord. And you've reminded us today the best news that we could ever imagine hearing, that all of our sins have been cast upon Christ and all of His righteousness has been given to us forever, Lord. You have given us eternal life in Your Son, Jesus. God, we bless You. We thank You for that gift of salvation. And we thank You, Lord, this morning that You've allowed us to gather together and sing praise to Your holy name, Lord. This is why You made us. This is why You gave us a mouth and a heart and a mind, God, to communicate with You, to know You, to declare Your glorious praise. And You've allowed us to participate, Lord, in the song of the ages, to the glory of Your name. And we thank You, Lord. And God, we come to this time, Lord, and we desire to hear from You this morning, God. We want to give ourselves to the study of Your Word. God, we want to sit under the preaching of Your Word this morning, and we ask, Lord, that You would fill up this time with the Holy Spirit, that You would save us, God, from ritual, empty Christianity, Lord, that You would save and deliver this time from falling to the ground in vain, and that You would cause Your Word to go forth and to accomplish its purpose today. Do it for the glory of Your name, Lord. God, we're Your children. We're Your children, Lord. Your sons and daughters all across this room. And we ask You to feed us today. Lord, give us a nourishing meal from Your Word. Nourish our souls today. This is our prayer. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright. Have your Bibles turn to Acts chapter 19. First thing we're going to do this morning is we're going to read our text together. Periodically, I remind you of the most important thing that I'm about to say. And by far, these are the most important words you're going to hear over the next hour this morning. We're going to read the words from God without error. We're going to read God-breathed words from the book of Acts. Words of power. Words from the Holy Spirit. And this is a longer passage this morning, and so I don't lose anybody. I want to ask us to stand this morning for the reading of God's Word. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of the Lord. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples, and he said to them, 
Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that he had touched, that had touched his skin, were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord to Grace Community Church this morning. You may be seated. Acts 19 is the story, and we just read part of it, of the power of God being unleashed in Ephesus. It's a major city in the Roman Empire. It's the fourth largest city in the world in its day. And we see the power of God explode in this city. And let me say this on the front end. One of the challenges that we have as we read the book of Acts together is reconciling our life every day in this world, our Christian life as we know it today, 
with this account of the power of God unleashed in the early church in the book of Acts. And so one of the great challenges facing us as disciples as we study through this book is how we apply it today. How we make that leap and that jump from the early church to our life in Christ and even our life together as the local church. It's one of the greatest challenges. And this is something that I'm hoping that we get really clear on as a local church as we, uh, in the next few weeks, as we head towards finishing up our study of the book of Acts, that we would know how to think about this book appropriately. That it's very unique in a lot of ways. There's some appropriate distinctions that need to be made, but at the end of the day, this is our book. This is, this is the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ that we have been called into. This is our book. This is the testimony of how the Holy Spirit works, even in every generation. And so we're going to talk more about that as we close today. How we think about these stories of power. How we think about these demonstrations of power in these major cities in the world. And how we think about those in light of our modern context. How do we read the book of Acts in light of our current experiences? So that's where we're headed this morning. That's what we will finish with. We'll jump right into our text this morning. Paul comes to the city of Ephesus. In verse 2, he bumps into 12 men. And Luke, in this account, calls these men disciples. And it's not long in Acts 19 uh, before we find out through, uh, through questions that Paul answers, uh, to, to questions that Paul asks and answers that these men give, we find out that these are actually not disciples of Jesus. They actually turn out to be disciples of John the Baptist. They're unconverted disciples of John the Baptist. And their answer to Paul's question begins to reveal that these men are not real Christians. And so notice that question that Paul begins to ask these men in verse 2. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? The foundational question of what it means to become a follower of Christ, of being converted to Christ. When you were lost, you did not have the Holy Spirit. And when you repent and believe the Gospel, you receive the Holy Spirit. And Paul is asking them this question. And from their answer, we can gather at least two things. Number one, these men did not have Christian baptism. They were baptized into John. Number two, these men say that they'd never heard of the Holy Spirit. So not only do they have an insufficient understanding of the Christian gospel and the finished work of Jesus Christ, they also have a distorted understanding of John the Baptist's message. Okay? Because if you remember what John the Baptist taught, you would remember this, that John pointed those crowds that came to him in the wilderness. Massive crowds came to him. John didn't point them to himself. John pointed them to the one who came after him. This great one, this prophesied one. And even more than that, John said very specifically that this promised one was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. So not only did they have an insufficient understanding of the finished work of Christ, they didn't even understand John's message appropriately. And so what does Paul do? As he begins to discern 
where these men stand, he begins to preach the gospel to them to fill in the gaps in their understanding. And in verse 4, we see Paul doing this. He rightly instructs these men that John's message was about, in verse 4, was about believing in the one that was to come, namely Jesus. Namely Jesus. So he finds these men, these disciples of John. John's message has got, had, had, was so popular, it had gotten out um, in, in scattered places in the Roman Empire. And even several decades after his death, the gospel, the finished work of Christ, had not caught up to the message of John in the city of Ephesus. And so Paul is bringing them up to speed with the finished work of Christ. Believe in Jesus, the one whom John pointed you to. And so we see these men, beginning in verse 4, we're told that these men received the gospel, they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told that they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And then we're told that they receive the Holy Spirit. Paul lays his hands on these men and they receive the Holy Spirit in a very visible way and in a very dramatic way. They begin to speak in tongues. They begin to prophesy. Now let me mention this as we ease in to this text this morning. I need to mention a couple of things that have been wrongly taught out of these few verses uh, in Acts 19. And one of the ways that these verses that we're, we're given attention to right now, one of the things that they have been used to teach is something called two-stage Christianity. And I want you to know about this. And two-stage Christianity is basically this, that, that being a real follower of Christ has two distinct stages to it. Stage one is this stage where you are converted where you repent of your sins, where you believe in the Lord Jesus, and where all of your sins are forgiven, and you are completely clean before God. And we could call that for our purposes this morning. That's the JV stage, the junior varsity stage. Okay, But then there's this other stage, this second stage called spirit baptism, where you receive the baptism of the Spirit in an experience that's completely separated from that first stage, and we'll call that the varsity stage. Okay, Two-stage Christianity. One stage you get saved, and then some stage later you receive the baptism and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Now there's many things that I would like to say about that two-stage teaching. And if you have any questions about that, I want to help you think through that. The only thing that I want to say this morning is that this text cannot mean that. This text that we're looking at in Acts 19, it cannot be a proof text for two different stages in the Christian life. These men, we're not reading about the second stage that they received. These men never had stage one. Therefore, this can't be about stage two. And I want you to think about that. When Paul, whatever these men had, before Paul got to Ephesus, they weren't Christians and they were not converted. And we know from Paul's interaction with these men, they didn't have the Christian gospel and they didn't have Christian baptism, which means they weren't Christians. They were not Christians. And so, this account that we have 
is of this group coming into salvation. And if they were Christians, just know this, that Paul would have never, mark this, he would have never rebaptized them in the name of Jesus. We just read an account about men getting saved. Okay? Not about 12 men receiving the second blessing. And so moving on this morning, we have this dramatic, visible gift of the Holy Spirit of God. He comes upon them in such a way, He's given in such a way, that you can visibly see them receiving this gift because they begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, we've seen this several different times in the book of Acts, these Pentecostal manifestations. This very visible way that the Holy Spirit is given. And we saw it beginning in Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit of God was given to the Jews. And we saw flames of fire and, and speaking in tongues and prophesying. And this was when the, the Holy Spirit was given to the Jewish people, gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And then the next time we see this manifestation in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 8. Very similar visible demonstrations are given when the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. They're called into the people of God. And then the same thing happens again in Acts chapter 10 when the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. And so this, is, this has been a consistent um, way that Luke has marked off different people groups receiving the Gospel. It's important for us to note this. That this experience that we're reading about in Acts 19, this is not the universal experience of Christians in the book of Acts. It's not. And you think about in recent weeks, as the gospel went to Corinth, or as the gospel went to Ephesus, there's no mention of Pentecostal demonstrations like this. And so even in the book of Acts, these demonstrations are unique. Okay? They're not exhaustive. They don't happen every single time the gospel lands in a city. But every single time these demonstrations are given, they're meant to be this visual picture that this group has made a real transition into salvation. It's meant to be a visible picture, a visible manifestation. They really are saved. They have the same gospel and the same blessings, even as the apostles in Acts chapter 2. And that's exactly what's being shown with these 12 men in Ephesus, that they're making a real transition, not from stage 1 to stage 2, but from unconverted to real Christianity. They're transitioning out of this old way, okay? this inappropriate, insufficient knowledge of Jesus. John the Baptist's gospel isn't good anymore. Jesus has died at this point. Jesus has been resurrected. Jesus is now ascended at the right hand of God and the Spirit has been poured out and we see the Spirit marking these men off. A real transition has been made. And these men become the first fruits of the church in Ephesus. And this becomes the very beginning of a powerful move of the Spirit in this city. And we're going to see more of that. I want to mention just a couple of things before we move forward. As we think through what we see Paul doing here, when he encounters these 12 men, it actually helps us tremendously uh, when we think about what he did and the principles that he applied. 
it helps us think about our evangelism towards this world. And one of the things that we ought to be doing is copying exactly what we see Paul doing here. And, and this is very simple. And this ought to be um, in, in the evangelism strategy of every Christian that Paul very simply asks questions. He asks people questions about where they stood, their understanding of the gospel. I mean, how much more simple could it get than just articulating basic, simple questions? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? What's your understanding of how we respond to the gospel? And then depending on how people answer that question, we jump in and we fill in the gaps of people's understanding of the saving message of Jesus Christ. Many people have called this questioning evangelism. Just trying to get a feel for where people are at. Trying to get a feel of of what the Spirit of God has already taught them and what they need to be instructed and jumping in and sowing seeds and being used by God to fill in whatever gaps He would have you to fill in. Asking questions about the Gospel. Preaching the Gospel. Bringing sufficient knowledge of Jesus Christ. You know, another thing I think is a good reminder for us from this story is it helps us to think about where people stand that cannot give a simple, basic articulation of the Christian Gospel. This story gives us some insight that people that cannot articulate the the just basic, simple, saving message of Jesus Christ are almost certainly not saved. Almost certainly they are not saved. They need to be instructed in the way of salvation. So part of believing in Jesus is your, the object of faith is you believe in the Word of Jesus. That means that people need to be able to give an account of what they're trusting in. What are you trusting in? And this text helps, helps us to think about people that have insufficient understanding of the Gospel are almost certainly not Christians and they need to be evangelized. We need to come beside them and we need to help them fill in these gaps. And that's really important because one of the marks, uh, really popular marks of Christianity in our day and in this city is there are many, many, many people who are deceived. They think they have received the Holy Spirit while at the same time they have an insufficient understanding of the gospel. And we need to remember those two things don't go together. That's how deception works, that someone thinks they have received the blessings of the gospel without a true understanding of the gospel. And we ought to be encouraged here that as we fill in those gaps, as we evangelize, and as we preach the gospel, the Lord saves. We see that in this story, that we can be instruments in the hands of Jesus Christ to drive back that deception in people's life, to fill in a true and saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, he transitions away from these 12 men, and Luke begins to zone in on Paul's preaching ministry in Ephesus. And he does what we've seen him do before. Uh, This is a pattern that we've seen replayed many times in the book of Acts. He goes first to the Jews, and he begins preaching the gospel in the synagogues to the Jews, and when they stubbornly reject the gospel, he turns to the Gentiles, and he does that again. 
I want you to notice in verse 8 that we are told that Paul preached the kingdom of God. That was his message. He, he preached about the kingdom of God. And let me just mention this in case you bump into this ever in your day. That one of the things that happens in an unbelieving uh, in an unbelieving world that's energized by Satan himself is that the, the Bible is attacked in many different ways. And one of the ways that the Bible has been consistently attacked is through unbelieving, critical Bible scholars. Okay? Unbelieving, academic, critical Bible scholars. And one of the consistent ways that, that these unbelieving academic men and women have criticized God's Word and mocked God's Word is they've accused the Word of God of being inconsistent. It's not consistent in itself. And one of the ways that we have seen this play out is people will claim Paul doesn't even agree with James. James teaches something different than what Paul teaches. And one of the most popular ways that this has been done is by pitting the gospel that Jesus preached against the gospel that Paul preached. And these academic, critical, unbelieving Bible scholars claim Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. But Paul didn't. When you get to Paul's letters, you don't find this kingdom language anymore. And Paul, the apostle, preaches this message of reconciliation. Okay? And look at how simple you know, this problem is to resolve. We are told, as simple as we could possibly be told in Acts 19, Paul preached the kingdom of God. So think about how sad that is to go to school, graduate school, seven, eight years of dealing with the Word of God, and you graduate with a Ph.D. in unbelief. And a seven-year-old child can read the Bible and understand plainly what we're being told. Paul is preaching the kingdom of God. He's preaching the kingdom. The same gospel that Jesus preached, Paul is preaching this same gospel. And the book of Acts is really, really helpful for us when we're reading the New Testament and we're trying to understand this transition of this, this word, the kingdom, is used all over the Gospels. And then when we come to the letters of the New Testament, it's not used as much. And the point there is not that it's not important anymore. That concept is now being articulated with different words. And the book of Acts is extremely helpful for us to understand this. In fact, the very last verse in the book of Acts, Acts 28, verse 31, shows us that preaching the kingdom of God is the exact synonymous thing as preaching the Lord Jesus as Christ. It holds them side by side. You preach the kingdom and you preach Jesus the Lord, you're preaching the same message. And that's Paul's message all over the New Testament. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. And this is what he's preaching all over the city of Ephesus. He is announcing the kingship of Jesus Christ. He's Lord. He's King. He is the exalted one at the right hand of God. 
And we know that this is the fulfillment of all those Jewish promises. The Jews were promised a ruler who would rule over the people of God and even more than that, all the nations. And Jesus comes forth as the fulfillment. He is the King of the kingdom. He is Lord. And this is Paul's message in Ephesus. And this needs to be really clear in our understanding that very central, the very center of the claim of the gospel, Jesus is not Santa Claus. Jesus is not a religious accessory that you add on to your life. It's not that you had this really great life and then Jesus came and made it better. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He made you. He owns you. He is Lord. He has absolute and total sovereignty in every way that you could possibly imagine. He has absolute and total claim upon every human being. He's Lord. He is the King of the kingdom. And the Gospel call is to bow to Him. To receive Jesus as King, as Lord. That's the impulse of salvation. That we will, When we believe in Jesus, we believe in the Lord. We submit to Him as a slave to the Master. He owns us and rules us in every way. He's Lord. He is the Lord Jesus. And He's like no other king that you have ever even dreamed about knowing. That this good news of the kingdom of God is that this king with all authority in heaven and on earth, he has bled, he has died for his enemies. For his enemies. Not like any other king that you know. He conquers your sin on the cross. He conquers the sin of every person who repents and trusts in Him. He conquers sin on the cross. He conquers unlike any other king that you've ever known. He is Lord. He's Lord of all. He's not just Lord in the church. He's not just Lord of Christians. Colossians chapter 1, all things were made by Him. All things were made through Him. All things were made for Him. He is the Christ and the Lord of the universe made every human being He made you. And part of this reminder of this Gospel and this message of the Kingdom of God is that He will be known as Lord no matter what. No matter what. And I've been preaching long enough to know that when that Gospel of the Kingdom is announced, periodically, the response, and you can see it visibly on people's face, is boredom. That message of the gospel of the kingdom is announced. That the King, the glorious one Jesus, has came, lived a perfect life, and died for sin. And the disposition periodically on a hearer can be, so what? What's for lunch? Or even sadder, Sometimes that disposition can be a mocking grin and a laugh of, yeah, I hear you saying He's Lord, but I've read all these books and I, and I know He's really not. And so I feel compelled to remind you this morning that part of this Gospel of the Kingdom is that Jesus is Lord no matter what you say. And the Bible reminds us, and I say this 
with a desire to see you awakened to reality. That you would take in a breath of reality that Jesus is Lord. And the Bible reminds us that there is coming a day where no one will be bored in the presence of Jesus Christ. No one will be bored. The Bible tells us that God has given Jesus the name that is above every name. And the Bible tells us that there is coming a day where every human being, even if you're bored and even if you're a mocker, He's the King. He rules all things. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will reign over all that He has made. The Bible says He will crack knees with a rod of iron. He will rule all the ungodly in absolute wrath for all of eternity. He is Lord and He will be Lord forever. And I want us to think about the grace of God that we have in this message of the kingdom. That this Christ has died for all who will trust Him. He's conquered the sins of all who will trust Him. And that offer is good for anyone today that would stop trying to usurp the the throne of King Jesus in your life. That you would turn away from trying to be your own king and you would bow before the King of glory in repentance and faith. The Gospel of the Kingdom. This is what Paul preached in Ephesus. Verse 10 tells us he preached it every single day. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is God's King. He rules over all things. Every day, Paul preached this message. And in verse 10, we find out that in this city, that this gospel of the kingship of Jesus Christ, it gained such a hearing in the city of Ephesus for two years every day. Such a hearing in the city of Ephesus that the Word of God tells us that an entire Roman province, province of Asia Minor, heard the Word of the Lord. How awesome is that? This is, you're reading through the book of Acts. This, this is the largest open door for the Gospel that we have in the book of Acts. Two years. The longest he stays, the largest open door. Testimony is given to the kingship of Jesus and an entire province hears the Word of the Lord. Of God. This is a powerful move, the Holy Spirit. Most likely, the, the seven churches of Asia Minor that Jesus writes to in Revelation 2 and 3, most likely, this is the time where they were began, when this mission outpost was set up in the city of Ephesus. Then, beginning in verse 11, we see the Spirit begin to bear witness and anoint the preaching of this gospel by empowering extraordinary miracles to be done through the Apostle Paul. We're told that people were healed from their sicknesses. We're told that demons were cast out. We're told that some of these miracles were done through the hands of Paul. And then we get to this really weird part of miracles being done by the clothes of Paul. Okay, And the Bible tells us these are extraordinary miracles. The power of God. Now we know from the next chapter in Acts 20, Paul addresses the Ephesian elders, and one of the things that he tells them is that he worked with his hands in Ephesus. 
Almost certainly that means that during this two-year period of daily bearing witness to the Gospel, he's still engaging periodically in this tent-making ministry in Ephesus. He's laboring in two ways, with his hands and in the Word of God. And most likely what this reference is to aprons and to handkerchiefs is most likely a reference to these sweat rags and aprons that the Apostle Paul used as he labored and as he made tents. That his clothes were carried to the sick and as they were applied to the body of the sick, they were healed. This is strange, incredible, extraordinary power of God being unleashed in this city. And the only thing like this um, in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 5, we're told that the Apostle Peter, that the Spirit of God rested upon him in such power that he walked the streets of Jerusalem, and as his shadow fell upon sick people, they were healed. These are extraordinary miracles in the book of Acts. Extraordinary. All kind of problems happen when we read extraordinary things and our immediate response is, this should be ordinary. Okay, So just zone in on those words. These are extraordinary miracles being done through the Apostle Paul. And let's talk a little bit about how we make this jump. Okay, How we apply these works of power, these moves of power, how we jump into our modern context. We're not apostles. Therefore, we can't lay the hands of apostles on anybody. And the only two manifestations like this that we see in the book of Acts are apostolic men, apostles, and we're not them. So let's think through this. There's some appropriate distance that needs to be placed between us and the apostles. Well, what are you saying, Dustin? Are you saying that we shouldn't pray for for, uh, sick people to be healed? Are you saying that God doesn't do this anymore, that He doesn't heal, and that we shouldn't pray for tormented people to be delivered, that God doesn't deliver people anymore? And I would answer categorically, no, I'm not saying that at all. And that's not the extraordinary part of these miracles. Okay, You find in the New Testament, non-apostolic men are involved with healings and, and exorcisms. That's not what we're saying at all. What's extraordinary about this account is the scale upon which it happens and the manner in which it happens. And so we ought to be praying for sick people to be healed as disciples of Jesus. And as we come across people that are tormented by demons, we ought to pray for them to be delivered. Amen? This is part of what's being revealed to us in the book of Acts, that the power of God has been given to His church. But, this also means that nobody at Grace Community Church better start a sweatband ministry in the, in the next couple of months. That you're sending out your undergarments in the name of the Lord for, for healing to be applied to the sick. There's appropriate distance between us and the apostles. And that's important because there are many imposters in our day that sell miracles in the name of Jesus. Buy this oil and you'll receive this healing. Buy this handkerchief that this holy man sneezed in and be delivered from this thing. Buy this prayer shawl and get your breakthrough. 
for only the price of $999. This is, this is prevalent in, in this culture, and we need to understand that that's a sham. Okay? That's a sham. So there's appropriate distance between us and the apostles, but that does not mean that the church of Jesus today is a powerless church. That's unbelief. That is unbelief. All throughout church history, there have been unusual demonstrations of the power of God when the Word of God is preached. All throughout church history, Luther bore witness to it in Germany. John Knox bore witness to it in Scotland. Whitfield and Wesley, unusual power of God in the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards bore witness to the conviction of God being so strong as the Word of God was preached that men would double over and couldn't even speak because the power of God rested upon the preaching of the Gospel to such strength. Unusual power all throughout church history has been displayed as the gospel is preached rightly and boldly. And that ought to encourage us not to be a bunch of miracle chasers, but it ought to encourage us that our job, and this ought to be a tremendous encouragement to us, if we want to walk in power, if we want to live in the power of God, then we give ourselves to distributing this message that the Holy Spirit loves to anoint. The message that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Holy Spirit loves to exalt Christ. And if we want to see the power of God, then we'll give ourselves to preaching the Gospel of the Kingship of Jesus. Next we see in verse 13 that even in the midst of this powerful move, of the Holy Spirit. We see a satanic counterfeit. And we're introduced to seven sons of Sceva. And we're told they're itinerant Jewish exorcists. Okay? That means they're travelers. King James Version called them vagabonds. They're wandering around and they are um, applying these mystical arts to those who are demonized, and they are supposedly curing people of these demons. And the most important thing for us to remember, this is their job. They are doing this for money. They travel around, and this is their gimmick. Okay? Josephus tells us about not these specific exorcists, but that these categories of men were known in the first century. These Jewish exorcists, traveling Jewish exorcists, and they were involved with really weird things. These men claimed to know the secret wisdom of Solomon, and through this secret wisdom of Solomon, they cast out spirits. They claimed to know secret names of God, and they would invoke these secret names of God in the presence of spirits, and supposedly these would bring deliverance. They're magicians, okay? using the Jewish God to propagate their doctrine. They're magicians. They're doing it for money. And so these men come to the city of Ephesus, and they see the power of God being poured out in Ephesus like they've never seen it before. I mean, they're seeing handkerchiefs touch a body, and the power of God being displayed, and sickness being banished from that individual. And when these wicked men see this happening, something wicked happens in that heart, 
and they see dollar signs. And their thought is, oh, this is actually quite beneficial for me. Okay? That there's power in the name of Jesus. Hmm, let me figure out a way to use this power to my own personal gain. This is what magic does. This is what incantations do. This is what spells do. The heart behind all of these things is an attempt by human beings to manipulate a spirit. That's what magic is. I'm going to say these magic words, or I'm going to rub on this magic potion, and I'm going to make this spirit give me what I want. Incantations, spells, and magic. They're attempts to manipulate spirits and deities. And that's how these men saw the name of Jesus. I'm about to use that name like a magic spell, and I'm going to get Jesus to give me what I want, this power demonstrated so I can get some money in the name of Jesus. They attempted to use His matchless, His powerful name for personal gain, and this is exactly what is forbidden by the third commandment of taking the name of the Lord in vain. That's what they did. They took the name of Jesus in vain. They saw it as this pitiful, common, petty name, just like every other false god and every other spirit in Ephesus. And just so we don't feel too much distant from us committing this same sin, this is the same thing that a politician does in America by dropping the name of Jesus in order to increase their voting base by by Christians. That if I talk about Jesus just enough, Christians will vote for me. That's using the name of Jesus for personal gain. It's the exact same thing they're doing here. Taking the name of the Lord in vain. Deuteronomy 5.11 tells us that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes His name in vain. He won't. And we see Jesus rise up in jealousy in this story, and He even uses demons to make sure that these blasphemers catch a beatdown in Ephesus. And that's exactly what happens in this story. They try to invoke that magic formula, and they find out Jesus is not like magic, and the demon jumps on them and beats them half to death. Verse 16 tells us that these men got their clothes beaten off of them. Okay, Now, there's a lot of you in here, hopefully most of you in here, and you don't know much about fighting. Okay, So let me just tell you how this goes. Let me give you some clarifiers here. Right? If you ever happen to be in a fight, and before that fight, you look down, and you have clothes on, and you suffer a series of blows, and you look down, and you no longer have clothes on, not only did you lose that fight, you caught what is called a beatdown. Okay? You got your clothes beaten off of you, and that's what happened to these blasphemers who took the name of Jesus in vain. They played games with His name, and they were beaten half to death, even beaten naked. Now, 
Um, these seven sons of Sceva, Alistair Begg calls them that they flee away from this place, the seven streakers of Sceva. Okay? God judged them. God judged them. And that probably was a really uh, um, you know, memorable story in the church of Ephesus and, and years ago. And just like we do. Hey, you remember what happened in the early days of Grace Community Church? Surely... And the coming years, they came back to that many different times of, hey, you remember when those guys tried to play games with the name of Jesus and they lost their clothes? Remember that? So this was, this was something that happened in this city that had far-reaching effects. And we're told that in the very next verse, verse 17, that this story about these exorcists being judged and beaten had a citywide effect in Ephesus. And it's important for us to understand why. Understand why. So, what we know is that this city is given over to magic. It's the city, and we'll talk more about this next week, where the temple of Artemis is in the midst of this city. It's a, it's a, it's a city given over to magic, given over to the occult, this is why we see these demonic things happening in the city of Ephesus. And we said that we know what magic does. Magic is an attempt to manipulate a spirit to get what you want. Well, think about the effect that this story has on a culture that's given over to magic, incantations, and spells. When this demon-possessed man jumps on these exorcists and beats them half to death, it becomes really clear to all that Jesus is not like these other gods. Jesus is not like these magic spells. His, his name is not like this magic formula that you repeat and get whatever you want. Jesus is Lord. He's not like these false gods. Jesus is not like a genie in a bottle where you rub the bottle and He comes and says, what would you like me to do? Jesus is not like that. Jesus is Lord. And a call to come to Christ is to come to Him, not to manipulate Him, but to come as His slave. He is Lord, and we are His servants. And so through this story, Jesus demonstrates His supremacy above all these false gods in Ephesus. And then the Spirit of God begins to seal this work. And this is the most authentic mark that I know to bring to you of what a real move of the Spirit always consists of and always con contains. And what we see is that the Spirit begins to pour out repentance and holiness unto the Lord. And you need to know this more than anything else. The Holy Spirit makes you holy. This is what He does. This is the mark of His work. His authenticating seal. And we see Him doing that here. This is that bulletproof mark of authentic moves of the Holy Spirit all throughout church history. You know this. When you see people in massive number begin to hate their sin and turn from their sin, you know the Holy Spirit did that. The Spirit of God is at work in this place where sin is hated, where sin is turned from. And these Ephesians began to do that. They began to burn their magic books. 
the value of these books and these spells that they begin to burn. In modern day currency, this would be over $5 million in one city. Think about this. It's a power demonstration. At great financial cost, they carry these demonic works into the midst of the city and they pile them up and they send them up like smoke in a moment of time. Can you imagine that? Burning $5 million to the ground. Why would somebody do that? And the only answer is, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. They don't care about money anymore. It doesn't matter to them anymore. Spirit of repentance is being poured out. And only Christ matters. Jesus is king. This is a mark of true conversion. Okay? Not necessarily that you burn books that you read when you were 13 years old, though you might need to do that. But the mark of conversion every single time is holiness. A break from sin. Turning away from sin and swearing allegiance to a king, Jesus. This is is what the Spirit of God is doing in Ephesus. He's sealing this work. Hosea chapter 2, verse 17 He says this, For I will remove the name of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. No more. The Spirit of God squashed the names of their false gods, their dark past. And this is true conversion. True conversion. And that ought to remind us and encourage us as disciples of Jesus that we ought to continue. This is how we began. This is how every disciple of Jesus began, is turning away from sin. And this story ought to remind us that we're supposed to continue in that same spirit that we received from the very beginning. Hating sin more and more. Confessing sin more and more. Turning away from sin more and more. And as we do those things, we can know without a shadow of a doubt, the Spirit of God is at work. In my life. This is what he does. This is his seal. In verse 20, we get the summary <clears throat> that this passage is about the word of the Lord continuing to increase and prevail mightily. That's what's happening in Ephesus. That's the big thing there. Word of the Lord, that phrase, increasing, multiplying, prevailing. That's a repeated phrase in the book of Acts. It happens in Acts 6. It happens again in Acts 12. And one of the takeaways, one of the things that we're supposed to be getting driven into us as we study through this book together is the Bible is telling us over and over the gospel, the word of the Lord, it's triumphant. It's a seed that has power. It prevails It's a message that does its job. It has power of salvation intrinsically. And this is the claim here. This is probably the most important takeaway for us as we study through the book of Acts together, that we walk away from our time in this book more and more convinced in the power of the gospel. Not just then and there, But here and now, same gospel, same Holy Spirit. And we need to understand that. Very shortly, this book is going to close in Acts 28. And we're going to finish our time and our study 
of Acts together. And one of the things that we need to know in the depths of our soul is that when this book closes, the Holy Spirit doesn't take a nap. He doesn't go to sleep. The same Spirit that was poured out on the church in Pentecost, He continues to energize the preaching of the Gospel all throughout church history. And any spiritual fruit that we have ever experienced at Grace Community Church has been from the power of the Spirit of God. We need to be more and more convinced of this day by day, week by week, that the same Spirit in the book of Acts is the same Spirit that we have received yesterday, today, and forever. Church history is one really encouraging way to drive this in that the same Spirit that's at work in the book of Acts is at work throughout all of church history. Power demonstrations. Powerful moves of the Holy Spirit. I'll mention just one of these. Um, I don't know a better example of a, of a post-apostolic church receiving the power of the Spirit like what we read um, about in the Protestant Reformation. So let me mention just a few of these things. This is an encouraging uh, reminder of what God can do in a church of a bunch of people who are not apostles, just disciples of Jesus with the Spirit of God. As the Reformation started like a spark in Europe, we are told that many countries immediately responded to the Reformation with heavy persecution. They persecuted the Reformers. They persecuted the Protestants. And what, one of the things that happened is that many of these Protestants became refugees and they fled their homelands. And many of these refugees landed in a city in Switzerland called Geneva. Called Geneva. And when they arrived, they found that God had raised up this man named John Calvin who was mighty in the Word of God. Just like what we read about in Apollos in the last chapter in the book of Acts. And as refugees began to gather into Geneva, in just a few years, the population of the entire city doubled. People were coming from all over and gathering in to Geneva. And what did John Calvin do? He began to preach the gospel doctrine, listen, every single day in Geneva. Exactly what we read about in Acts 19. Preaching the Word of God every single day. And just a few years of this, those sparks scattered like fire all across Europe where the true gospel was spread to the known world at the time. In one city, in one church, with one man. Let me give you just a few of these marks. The, the English refugees that came into Geneva, and they landed there under Calvin's preaching, they translated one of the first English Bibles called the Geneva Bible. It's the first study Bible in church history. And the, and the study notes in the Geneva Bible are just notes directly from the daily preaching of John Calvin in Geneva. That Bible that was put together in those holy three or four years, that was the, the Bible of choice for the English Puritans and for the colonists that came to America for a hundred years. That was their Bible. 
God did that in this one powerful move of the Holy Spirit. Calvin's daily sermons were written down, translated into over ten languages, packed up, and shipped all across Europe, spreading the gospel, establishing Protestant churches. Many of these refugees that came into Geneva, just a few years sitting under John Calvin's preaching, they returned back to their homelands to plant churches. Hundreds of churches planted. So many of these men die martyrs that they nicknamed this school in Geneva Calvin's School of Death. And we need to understand, we look at those stories and we, we understand this is really clear. It wasn't business as usual. In Geneva, the Spirit of God came. The Spirit of God was poured out. That Spirit of power, that same Spirit that we see at work in the book of Acts, He came down in, in, in a post-apostolic church and did exploits for the Gospel. Powerful works of the Spirit. And so I want to challenge us in that direction, that one of the things, week by week, as we hear about the triumphs of the gospel in these ancient cities, one of the things that's supposed to be happening in us is this hunger being produced in us. Jesus, do it again. Lord Jesus, do it again. Do it in our day. Do it in our generation. Do it for your glory. Do it in this church. Let the preaching of the Word of God be visited with power and even unusual power for the glory of your name. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. The book of Acts is supposed to produce this in us. And as we read week by week, we're being reminded that as disciples of Jesus, by grace, we get to participate in this triumph of the gospel, even in our day. It increases and it prevails mightily. I'm going to close us with prayer and we're going to ask God that the Lord would begin to do that more and more. That He would fill us with this zeal that drives us to intercession, even past today, of Lord, do it again. Lord, stretch out Your hand. And so we want to pray that together as a church now. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we ask that You would help us, Lord, not to receive it in vain today, God, but that You would bless the preaching of Your Word, Lord. God, I pray that anything today that was in, in error or unhelpful, that You would remove it from minds and remove it from hearts, but anything that's from You, Lord, we ask You to make it burn, Lord. Encourage us, God. Let Your Word revive us and give us life, Lord. And we pray, God, we thank You that You have, Lord, You have visited Your people from on high. You have poured out power from on high upon Your church, Lord. And we want to see more. We want You to, see, we want you to be more glorified in our midst. And so we ask You, Lord Jesus, come glorify Your name, Lord. Lord, deal with us in whatever way we need to be dealt with, whether it's through cold indifference, or through academic unbelief, whatever needs to crumble, God, deal with us graciously, Lord. We want to be a people that are marked by Your Gospel and by Your power, Lord. And we ask You, You're so glorified 
in these stories of demonstrating Your power. And we ask You to glorify Your holy name in our day, in our city, and in this church. Lord, make us a hungry people. Lord, do that all across this room, Lord. Convict us of every area of our Christian life where we're comfortable. Convict us of every area of our Christian life where we're content to operate without Your power, without Your anointing, without a conscious awareness of Your presence and of Your promises. Make us a people of the Spirit, we pray. In Your name, Lord Jesus, we ask. Amen. Amen.